The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Emily Day, and this is an episode from the Lawfare Archive for October 17th, 2021. There's been a lot of news this week about the U.S. supply chain and the delays and congestion at ports across the country caused by slowed production and increased demand for goods as the global economy recovers from the coronavirus pandemic. For this week, I chose an episode from April 25th, 2020, featuring Rob Carr and Mark Densler. With focus on what's happening in Illinois, they examine a case study of how pandemic control measures intersect with federalism issues in supply chain continuity and security. I'm David Priest, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, April 25th, 2020. We've covered this novel coronavirus from many angles here at Lawfare, focusing on the disaster response issues that make up part of national security. Today, we have something a bit different, a case study of how pandemic control measures intersect with federalism issues and supply chains, continuity, and security. And we focused on my home state of Illinois with two guests in great positions to offer insight. First, Mark Densler. Mark is the president and CEO of the Illinois Manufacturers Association representing companies that employ almost 600,000 Illinoisans. Mark was also named by Illinois Governor J.B. Pritzker as co-chair of the Essential Equipment Task Force. I also spoke with Rob Carr, president and CEO of the Illinois Retail Merchants Association, representing the industry employing one out of every five people in Illinois. It's the Lawfare Podcast, Coronavirus, Federalism, and Supply Chains, a case study. Let's start off with uh, some scene setting here, Mark and Rob. Talk to me just a little bit from each of you about the situation that is facing Illinois manufacturers, Mark, and Illinois retail and restaurants, Rob, in the face of this pandemic. Good afternoon, David. Uh, I appreciate you having me on the podcast today. And manufacturers are certainly facing challenges globally across the United States and in Illinois. What we're seeing in the manufacturing space are stories of companies doing very, very well, particularly those that might be in food or chemical or medical supplies. And conversely, we're really seeing economic challenges and struggles 
from manufacturing companies that might be in the auto space, for example, or the aerospace where the bottom has kind of dropped out of the market. And so it's really a tale of two cities, so to speak, uh, where we've seen some do exceedingly well and we've seen others really, really struggle. Mm -hmm. Rob, uh, compare and contrast with the retail and restaurant sectors. Yeah, David, and it's great to be with you, and thanks for having us. Um, it, it is not dissimilar. Uh, retail as a spectrum, though, has been savaged by this pandemic. You have retailers who are considered non-essential businesses, and they chafe at that term because, understandably, they believe themselves to be essential given the jobs mm -hmm. and tax revenue they generate. They're shut. They're, they're trying to figure out how they're going to survive or they're on very limited operations, such as they're allowed to do you know, shipping and delivery from their store. Or if you're a restaurant, you're allowed to do takeout or delivery. But then you have the other side of the equation, smaller pockets, which are grocery and pharmacy, which are exceedingly busy as they're trying to keep everyone fed and, and uh, as healthy as we can uh, during this pandemic. And they're dealing with a whole host of other issues in terms of trying to... Uh, manage customer demand, change operations in terms of uh, managing social distancing and, and the norms that we've all grown up with, um, and then also um, just trying to hire up in, in areas as well. So um, there's a little bit of uh, different challenges that they're facing on the spectrum. Let's drill down a bit on that thing you mentioned about essential businesses before we talk more about the relationship with the federal government and policymaking. Mark, back to you. I recall when we talked a couple of weeks ago, you mentioned that at least in Illinois, that every manufacturer gets to make its own determination whether they are essential. Can you talk through that and how that's working? So the governor issued an executive order more than a month ago that was later extended through the end of April. And David, there's probably another executive order coming out today that may further define who can operate and not operate. We were very happy with the original executive order in that manufacturing, distribution, and supply chain generally were considered essential and could continue working. And in terms of process, companies essentially self-designated whether they fit the definition in the executive order. So mm -hmm. if they were part of pharmaceutical or chemical, agriculture, food and beverage, steel, et cetera, they made that determination solely if they met that definition, they continued operating. They didn't have to go to state government or local government to get some kind of permission slip or form that, that certified them. And then all the employees of that business were able to work as well. We are hearing that the governor's executive order today for manufacturing may try to limit it a little bit further to make sure that only essential manufacturers are working. So we'll see what comes out later today, but the process has worked very well so far for manufacturers. And the Illinois model was actually adopted by a number of other states for their use in their executive orders. So it's worked fairly well so far, but we'll, we'll see what happens today when the government announces a new executive order. And do you get the sense, Mark, that that executive order, if indeed it does put some tighter restrictions on essential manufacturing, is that directly linked to the fact that the case count in Illinois keeps rising? 
It is. The governor continues to talk about trying to bend the curve. Illinois has done a good job bending the curve. I think originally our count was doubling every 3.6 days. It's now doubling every 8.2 days. So we've done a good job of bending the curve, but the governor now believes that the apex will hit in early to mid-May. So his goal of trying to further bend that curve or um, reduce the number of sicknesses and deaths, I think, is behind the executive order. Our concern with it, David, is you can have enormous impact on the economy, particularly supply chains, if you if some of these companies were to shut down because uh, a critical supplier for automotive, for example, or for medical products, someone may not deem them essential, not understanding what the final product is. And so mm-hmm. supply chains are very precarious, and the governor and his team need to be very careful about interfering with that. Rob, let's let's play that over to the retail and restaurant side. You mentioned the difference between groceries and pharmacies. What else is in that category or is, in a sense, in the wider category of things that are close to essential that could be affected by these different decisions? Sure. So the executive order that we're currently operating under was more prescriptive mm-hmm. for retail. So there was less of an ability to self-designate. Anything that was considered essential to uh, the home, to health, mm-hmm. to working at home was largely considered essential from a retail perspective. So, you know, an electronic store could stay open because they were selling goods or had services that would enable people to work from home. Grocery stores, pharmacies, hardware stores could stay open. The problem has become over time is you have local governments who are the enforcement arms who have decided to try to further define what is essential or non-essential. And we've even had Mm -hmm. some trying to suggest that you have to close off certain aisles or layering on their own um, restrictions. That that has been uh, an enormous amount of time we've spent trying to manage that. But but the EO was more prescriptive for us. So there there was less of that that ability to self-designate. There's some confusion, for example, over garden centers and nurseries, Mm -hmm. uh, whether they could continue to sell you know, spas, people have hot tubs at home or pools, whether those qualified as sanitation. So it has not been uh, without its challenges. My understanding is that there's been a lot of retooling, especially on the manufacturing side. Mark, if I recall, wasn't Crown Royal was produced somewhere in Chicagoland and that's not happening anymore. What's, what's happening with that facility? There are amazing stories like this all across Illinois and the United States. And Diageo, for example, as you mentioned, is a liquor manufacturer located just outside Chicago that is now producing hand sanitizer and thousands of gallons of hand sanitizer that they're donating and providing to first responders and healthcare workers. And it's really been heartening to see companies in this warlike effort that, that literally are changing what they make to make necessary products. Again, whether it's hand sanitizer, emergency beds, masks and gowns, we've really seen hundreds of companies in Illinois that have changed what they're manufacturing to start making this critical equipment across the state. And that that sounds like a a great story, a good news story, but I don't think it's as easy as you make it sound. (laughs) Here is a factory that has been tooled to produce alcohol in certain bottles, in certain sizes, with certain inputs and supplies. And all of a sudden, they're making a whole new product in different containers requiring different inputs. How 
how is that working with the supply chain for the the precursors coming across state lines or even internationally in some cases? It, it is difficult. And when you make something like hand sanitizer, you do have to have federal approval, FDA approval, and you have to have ingredients and it has to be tested. And so companies that are retooling in some cases that do require federal approval, you know, the FDA has relaxed some of these guidelines, but you're right. We've had to help them find new bottles, new lids, make sure that they can provide this. And in some cases, David, they've provided 55 gallon drums to hospitals that then will rebottle it. Mm. In other cases, they are producing the eight or 12 ounce bottles that then can be provided to individuals. So Diageo has really stepped up and they're providing all different size product, but it is a challenge to get all of that federal approval to be able to operate. You mentioned some of the FDA regulations have been loosened, that some of those those restrictions have been opened up a bit. But you still have to have some inspections. You still have to have some verification, and that requires people. Do you get any sense at a granular level of how that federal oversight and regulatory authority is working in a situation where people can't do face-to-face as easily as they once did? That's a great question and a great point. And the FDA has relaxed regulations on sanitizer and face masks and gowns. And there are different standards, whether it's used in a hospital or healthcare setting versus being used in a retail store or manufacturing facility. And so a lot of the companies that have retooled may have already received FDA approval to make a different product, maybe a medical product. So the FDA has inspected their facility at some point. That's made it a little bit easier. On the other hand, we have clothing manufacturers that want to start making masks and gowns that have not been able to get an FDA person into their facility. So as as a result, they are making masks that go to retail workers or manufacturing that don't go in that healthcare setting because they have not had that FDA approval, mm-hmm. the FDA certification or the inspection of their facilities. So it's it's far easier for companies to retool that already have some level of FDA oversight or approval as opposed to those companies that don't. Rob, what's the parallel here for retail and restaurants? There's there's federal regulatory authorities that apply, although in a different and perhaps a lesser sense, but what is it that has changed at the federal or the state level in terms of regulations and restrictions on retail and restaurant activity? Sure. And our interaction, as you pointed out, Dave, is more on the state and local level, particularly mm-hmm. with health departments when it comes to groceries and restaurants, right? So as a result of this pandemic, self-serve type operations have been suspended. So think about going into a grocery store and you used to be have a hot bar and, mm-hmm. well, and pick up your lunch or a, you know a salad bar and and that self-serve operation is now is now gone. Um, you used to be able to bring in, you know, reusable mugs to fill up with your your own coffee or, or soda, whatever your beverage of choice is. That those are now gone. And are those is that a state level decision or is that localities all choosing to do that? It's a state guidance. The state mm-hmm. the state department of public health issues guidance. Got it. Uh, and then the locals execute based on what they do or don't want to do. But nearly everyone at least in our membership, had started to do that on their own. As is not atypical, uh, the private sector tends to get ahead of where regulations are going. Tends to, not always the case, but certainly were in this case. And then we get into operational changes that that we've had to make, uh, you know, putting up barriers, 
between uh, point of sale clerks and, and the customer, which mm-hmm. is anathema to the traditional retail thinking, right? You want that relationship, that, that interpersonal interaction. Um, rethinking how you handle the point of sale and, and retooling that, uh, retooling your sanitation practices, all in the midst of trying to keep everyone to meet the heightened demand that occurred during the pandemic as well. Mark and I have joked, it's not as uh, exciting as seeing someone uh, you know, convert their factory over from what they traditionally make to something else, but it's nonetheless important as we try to navigate uh, the changing demands of the pandemic. Right. What are both of you hearing from other states, your counterparts working across the country and especially regionally, are they experiencing the same challenges or are they different because of the the different balance of manufacturers and retail in those states? Mark, you first. So our states in the Midwest are all experiencing similar types of challenges and successes. Illinois' governor, J.B. Pritzker, just signed a collaborative with six other states in the Midwest not to share dates for reopening, for example, but rather best practices. But every state has a different reopening date. They have a different executive order. But in large part in the manufacturing space, they're all very similar in that essential manufacturing can operate. Uh, It's a little bit more limited in Michigan, for example, than it is in Illinois and Wisconsin and Minnesota. I think there's a lot more challenges in Michigan than what we've seen in Illinois and some of these other Midwest states. The issue right now is how we're going to reopen the economy and what steps are being taken. Rob talked about the safety measures, for example, and that's something that's critically important for manufacturers who are concerned about the safety of their workers and their families and their communities. And so all the states, I think right now in my discussions with my counterparts are looking at what safety measures can be taken. Manufacturers have the ability to control their plants, uh, who comes in and who leaves, as opposed to maybe a grocery store or a retail store. And so they're, they're taking measures like temperature checks and split shifts, increased spacing, increased sanitation to make sure there is safety. So the Midwest is certainly a little bit maybe behind what we're seeing in the Southeast, where governors are talking about reopening states. Our curve is a little bit slower than what we've seen in New York or Washington or California. But overall, the Midwest is generally similarly situated. Yep. Rob, your perspective on this. Yeah, it's been a little bit different for us. Uh, and it, it falls, it seems to fall along the traditional political lines. Illinois has more in common from a regulatory perspective and has had more in common in a response perspective to states like California or New York mm-hmm. uh, than we do, for example, to Georgia uh, or Oklahoma, just, just to name two. So I have been in contact regularly with my counterparts in, in those states, but also have organized uh, regular conversations with our peers in the Midwest, particularly those states that Governor Pritzker is talking with on a regular basis to try to coordinate our messaging in terms of the basics that we would like to see the approaches, the general approaches we would like to see, recognizing that each state is going to be a little bit different. You know, Mark noted that not every state's going to open at the same time and they're not really talking about a time schedule, but we just wanted to align uh, the consistent messaging so that they had that consistent message from the retail community as to what might be needed when they hit certain thresholds. So mm-hmm. we've tried to organize uh, both with like states and then with our surrounding states to talk through all these issues and and frankly, just to uh, sometimes share frustrations and uh, 
and uh, concerns because sometimes nobody knows it like the people that you're walking with. Sure. It sounds like a, a lot of cooperation and coordination and even just sharing notes at the state level. Mark, I know from our conversation a couple of weeks ago that you at least have been in touch with folks at the White House too. Talk a little bit about what you are hearing directly and then through the governor's office and through the Essential Equipment Task Force that you're co-chairing from the federal government and how you see that response evolving. So this is an interesting dichotomy where the state of Illinois has really battled the White House in terms of equipment. As you mentioned, the governor appointed me to co-chair an Essential Equipment Task Force now about three or four weeks ago to help increased procurement of these needed products, whether they be masks and gowns or sanitizer or ventilators. And this has been a constant frustration between the governor and the White House, with the governor claiming that the White House and FEMA have not provided enough materials. And conversely, the president and FEMA offering weekly updates on the amount of equipment that they have provided to the state of Illinois. Initially, I would say that it's been very slow getting product from FEMA into Illinois. Mm -hmm. We have had to work with the White House, uh, with the National Association of Manufacturers and others, for example, to get masks released to the state of Illinois that were literally sitting in Indiana 90 miles away. So there's been a slowness for FEMA to react. Now, some of that may be attributed to, as Rob mentioned, politics. We have a Democrat governor, whereas President Trump is a Republican, and, and the governor is not a shrinking violet, so he often goes on national TV to criticize the federal response. And, and that may have resulted in some of the supply chain issues coming from FEMA to the state of Illinois, unfortunately. So the White House has reached out. We've reached out to the White House to help procure PPE, whether it's through FEMA or connections to other companies or to help in some cases where we've had sources in Korea or China, just making sure we can get it into the country, get it into Chicago, get it through uh, through the uh, export-import process. And so we've had a number of conversations with the White House, and they've, they've done their best to try to be helpful addressing our concerns. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Could your political views make you the target of cybercrime, identity theft, stalking, or even violence? I used to think this was silly, and then weird things started happening to me. Someone defaced my car. It had lawfare license plates on it. Somebody delivered weird antique postcards of Guantanamo Bay to my house. You know, weird stuff. The volume of personal data online has tripled between 2019 and 2023, and angry individuals fueled by political polarization can access it all for up to 98% of American citizens. And I was one of them. Lots of people were using my name, my home address, uh, other information about me 
to try to intimidate me. And I want to say that has dramatically slowed down in recent months. And one of the reasons is delete me. As I have said before, there are products here that I read the ads because, you know, that's my job. And there are products here that I read the ads because I really use them and really like them. And Delete Me is one of the lawfare advertisers that I am most enthusiastic about. And here's why. Uh, it finds and removes personal information I don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from all of the largest search databases on the web. And in the process, it helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. And here's the important point. It doesn't just do it once because the information will get back into the systems. It does it and then it does it again. So the first time I got one of these reports and they send regular reports uh, at Delete Me, you know, there were a whole bunch of systems that I'd come off of. But then each time I get one now, there's still one or two or three that I'm back on the system and Delete Me has once again deleted me. So sign up and provide Delete Me with exactly what information you want deleted and their experts will take it from there. And as I say, they send regular personalized privacy reports showing what info they have found, where they found it, and what they removed. It's always working for you constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. When you sign up, they immediately go to work scrubbing all your personal information from data broker platforms. Your personal profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me now at a special discount for Lawfare listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use the promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and enter code lawfare20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 code Lawfare 20. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. If I could offer you an extra hour a day in your life, what would you do with it? Would you go for a run? Would you sleep in? Would you read? Would you go hang out with a friend? A lot of us spend time wishing we had more time. You actually can create more time for yourself. It's by figuring out what's important to you, making that a priority, and that is where therapy can help you. It can help you find out what matters to you so you can do more of it and less of the things that you don't care about but you actually waste a lot of time on. Therapy is a great way to prioritize what's important to you, to focus on what matters and dismiss the trivial. It's a great way to learn how to set boundaries and how to develop coping skills. It can help you be the best version of yourself. And it isn't just for those who've experienced major traumas. If you're thinking of starting therapy, why not try BetterHelp? It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient and flexible 
You can make it work with your schedule. All you do is you fill out a brief questionnaire and you get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com lawfare today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash lawfare. You're being almost too polite here, Mark. You're talking about uh, some tension between the federal government and uh, J.B. Pritzker, the governor. He's been very blunt, saying he's gotten very little help from the federal government. And I think he announced recently he had said he's given up on any promises that have been made to the point that in the news, supposedly, the state of Illinois spent $1.7 million on flights to bring medical supplies from China because they had no faith the federal government was going to get it to Illinois at all. You're right. It is, I I probably sugarcoated a little bit. There is no love lost between the president and the governor. The governor from the outset has done his best, I believe, to try to find the equipment that's necessary here. He doesn't think that the president and, and the federal government have come through. And in some degree, that's probably accurate that we have lagged behind other states in getting the equipment. But to the president's credit, I guess, you have to provide equipment to the hotspots. And certainly New York was a hotspot initially. The state of Washington was a hotspot. You know, Illinois has now stood up a hospital at McCormick Place, the large convention center in Chicago. Mm -hmm. And they've had very few people that have used that hospital. And we're hearing they're already going to probably shut it down in June. And so... You know, I I think that Illinois, I don't want to say is overprepared, but may have cried wolf a little bit too early. And I think we do have right now a lot of ventilators. We have a lot of hospital bed capacity right now. So, you know, knock on wood, we are prepared for what else comes in the next couple of weeks. But yeah, there is no love lost between the governor and the Mm -hmm. president. And, And the governor has arranged, spent a couple million dollars getting equipment flown in from China and other locations because he does not believe the federal government's going to come through with the supplies that he believes are necessary. Sure. Rob, let's talk about the federal angle that you're seeing. It's obviously not FEMA in the same sense that that Mark is dealing with, but with the Small Business Administration's Paycheck Protection Program, the PPP, that has received so much attention and, frankly, a lot of criticism for a lot of aid going to major retailers that in theory, at least, have a little bit more of a cushion and not getting to the mom and pop retailers that often need it most. Talk a little bit about what you're seeing and hearing there with the federal PPP. Well, you summarized it nicely. I mean, there's just a lot of frustration and to a certain extent, anger, particularly among the small and mid-sized businesses who have not received any assistance. I think the, the rollout and I'm trying to be gracious. I, you know, we're all dealing mm-hmm. with something that we didn't fully anticipate, um, and we're trying to make decisions on the run. But you, you had large banks that appeared to certainly have uh, been able to process applications quickly, and you had many community banks with whom most small and mid-sized businesses bank who, who were not able to do so. So um, whether it was through neglect or, you know, intent, I, I don't know, but you, you, you had that, that dynamic and it's caused a lot of anger. Now, hopefully with, uh, the Congress, hopefully they're going to finish uh, their, their work and, um, insert additional money into that program because it's mm-hmm. exceedingly popular. 
uh, and does give flexibility. And then, you know, we'll be able to see more of those small and mid-sized businesses uh, applications approved. But but that anger is is clearly out there. It's palpable. Uh, and we hear about it. And to the extent we can, we try to navigate it. But there's limited things you can do. Is it fair to say that there are some small and medium-sized businesses that are already, in a sense, closed down? That is, they won't reopen because the financial hit has been too strong in the last few weeks. Uh, I am sure that will be the case. In, in our membership anyway, I am being told that they've still got a few weeks left. Right. I have been told, um, and, and to be very frank, David, I've had tearful conversations with members mm-hmm. who who are telling me very frankly that if things aren't back to relative normal by June 1, they will not be able to reopen, right. PPP notwithstanding. And yet they probably feel the tension for their workers too, of feeling we put them and everyone else in danger if we reopen too early. Oh, they, they clearly feel that tension. They clearly right. feel that tension. And and uh, I think what we're trying to uh, prepare everyone for is that, you know, vaccine is 18 months away at best, at mm-hmm. best. Uh, the testing that we'll need is apparently not on the horizon. The tracing programs that we'll need are apparently not on the horizon. Um, we can't stay in this state for 18, 24, 36 months. We are mm-hmm. all going to have to figure out how to uh, live, I think, with the presence of COVID or something like it. Um, and the sooner we do that, the better for everyone, whether you're someone who's unemployed and wants a job, whether you're a local government or the state government who relies upon the sales tax revenue we generate. There's a lot of reasons that we need to start to figure out how to do this. And I think to a large extent, retail has, at least for the functions that we fill, have figured out how to do that, or at least have charted the course. And I think there are things we could apply to make that happen. Really quick on that point, I think while PPP is a great program, one of the challenges it's created for some of our members who are not operating right now and and likely more of Rob's members are that if they apply for the money right now, and it's good to keep their workers on the payroll for eight weeks. But if they don't have any customers coming in the doors of the restaurants or the mm-hmm. closed retail stores or the closed manufacturing stores, it's great to keep them working for eight weeks, but they don't have customers coming in. They don't have revenue coming in. And so in some cases, it would be great if PPP could be changed to allow them to offset those costs once they reopen and they have customers coming in the door, if that makes sense. Because again, mm-hmm. you could give money to a restaurant today, but because people aren't leaving their houses and going to the restaurants, they don't have any customers coming in the door. Sure. And there's also the assumption that, and there isn't going to be a magic button for reopening everything, but as things reopen, that they have the supplies to do so. The supply chain for manufacturing, but even for the retail and restaurant industry is taken for granted in a lot of those assumptions. But let's talk about that a bit because the supply chains, with rare exceptions probably, do cross state lines and in many cases cross international boundaries as well. How are you seeing the interruptions to the global supply network already affecting the ability for those businesses that are still essential? And what are they talking about in terms of how this will play out in the future? Mark, go ahead. This is becoming more and more of a challenge every week that this pandemic continues to hit the United States. We certainly lost a lot of global supply chain initially in Asia and in Europe, 
it shows the importance of American manufacturing and continuing to have a strong base here. And I think once this is all said and done, hopefully we'll see some additional reshoring and more manufacturing in the U.S., still understanding the importance of global trade. We're trying to build those supply chains in Illinois and in the United States, and some of that are companies that are retooling. But it's created a challenge. And I think one of the big issues that we're going to see here in the next couple of weeks, David, is the food supply chain. America has a very robust and strong food supply chain going from the farm to manufacturers to Rob's retail stores. And we've really seen in particular lately some protein facilities that are closing down because of COVID virus and Mm -hmm. facilities providing chicken and beef and pork. Uh, a couple plants have shuttered that provide, you know, 4% each of the of the nation's meat supply. And so I think we're going to begin seeing maybe a shortage of some of these meat products in grocery stores, which then will increase prices. And what we have continued to say is that don't hoard. There's plenty of supplies, whether it be toilet paper or sanitizer or nutritious food. But if we start seeing shortages of food, for example, you're then going to see more and more hoarding cases. And then, you know, again, folks that might be less well off are going to maybe struggle a little bit more to find some of that nutritious food. Right. I also think on the food side, I mean, I grew up in central Illinois and I remember everything revolves around corn and soybeans once you're outside of a town or a city. We're in the prime dates for planting corn and soybeans now, and yet some farmers don't have the essential supplies they need to get that operation started. So it seems to me that there could be a a lag effect for retail, for restaurants, even for manufacturing based on some of these raw inputs. It will. And and we're already seeing farmers, for example, when you talk about pork that are considering, you know, having to maybe kill piglets, for example, because if pork plants are not producing, Mm. they can't continue raising hogs because there's nowhere to send them to. And you're right, your farmers that need chemical and they need seed to be able to plant right now, if those supply chains are shut down, then it's going to have a huge ramification, as you mentioned, on the entire food supply chain, not only in the United States, but globally, because the vast majority of product that we provide, we export all around the world. Uh, Rob, let's say that restaurants and retail are essentially reopened, perhaps with social distancing, perhaps with metering of people inside a facility, and of course with personal protection. But let's say May 1st or June 1st, we see some reopening. Will those merchants have the supplies they need from states and international sources to actually sell to customers who do want to buy? If it happened today, I think they would, because those same social distancing norms or regulations that would be put into place also means your demand at Mm -hmm. restaurants, for example, is less than it might otherwise be. But as Mark pointed out, you're seeing some concerns around particularly protein plants, We had concerns around milk because institutions like schools were now closed and you had dairy farmers or have dairy farmers dumping milk. We had an issue with eggs, but we've ironed that out. Um, I think the main concern is is protein. Uh, Now, we might have a concern with fruits and vegetables, but that is, is yet to be seen. I think that we'll be all right. Certainly to date, the supply chain, I think, has been a real success story. I think that is the one area where government and private sector cooperated early 
mm-hmm. and often, and and we got uh, the regulatory kinks ironed out to meet the uh, panic buying. But to echo Mark's point, regardless, if everyone just bought normally, we'll be okay. The the challenges we faced early were entirely driven by irrational panic buying that had no relation, frankly, to the pandemic. Why everyone was purchasing toilet paper, given the symptoms of the COVID-19, is beyond me. But, you know, as long as we go back to normal, we'll be all right. And let's let's talk a little bit about the implications of a few months and even a year out. Now you have some countries around the world who are opening up their manufacturing again. I think South Korea is starting to produce again. And other countries at different points will decide that it's time to start pushing things to markets in a way that they haven't in the last month or two. That affects our businesses too, because the markets that they've had, if other countries open up sooner and can get product to them, then those markets might not be there when we fully reopen. Mark, how are manufacturers anticipating this in an era of such uncertainty? And what can the state or federal government do to help out? There is a lot of concern about this. We need a strong American manufacturing economy, but you need that supply base. And manufacturers in Illinois that I've talked to in the last couple of days, they're not only worried about international challenges, but also other states when they're starting to see Georgia and Tennessee and South Carolina reopen. They're worried about losing business to other states and then really worried about losing business to China or Korea or other countries that are opening. And it's very hard to acquire a customer. It's easier to keep a customer. And there is great concern that their current customers are going to go elsewhere to get their product as these other countries reopen before the United States or before a certain state. And we don't know what it's going to look like in a year. Unfortunately, this is the first time we've had to go through uh, a global pandemic like this, but just the lack of certainty and the foresight about what's going to happen is is really keeping manufacturers up at night. They're doing their best to keep their supply chain operating. For the most part, logistics have been okay, whether it's global or domestic logistics in terms of being able to move a product. But there is a lot of concern that their customers will go somewhere else to find product uh, if it can't be produced here in the United States. There's one federal act that has received a lot of attention, largely because it has not been invoked fully, and that is the Defense Production Act, that the president could require manufacturers to produce certain necessary goods. What are you hearing from manufacturers there about the possible invocation of the act and how you think it might apply to some of the bigger manufacturers in Illinois? Well, certainly manufacturers in the United States were already starting to produce this equipment before the president has invoked it on an occasion or two. First, he used it, I believe, with General Motors to require them to start producing ventilators and then certainly had conversations with 3M about producing N95 respirator masks. I would tell you that manufacturers across the country in Illinois had already started moving in this direction. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure that they needed the president or the DPA to tell them to do that. There is some concern uh, on the part of large global companies who have markets across the world that they potentially could lose other markets if they're forced to provide 90% or 100% of all their product to the United States. Mm-hmm. It's a very careful dance. They're certainly concerned about the United States. They want to sell here uh, if they're American companies or even if they're foreign companies with plants in the United States. 
So there is some concern, though, about losing again if the president invokes DPA that they have to sell or retool their facilities to only sell in the United States. What's that going to mean for the relationships around the world? And 95% of consumers live outside the United States. And getting back to your previous question, there is growing concern that if the president further invokes DPA, while that might help United States getting some of these products, it might hurt other countries and some of these companies that do business all around the world. Right. Rob, let me turn to you to start to close out here. Let's talk about the implications for disaster response overall, whether it's best practices, things you've seen working well for your members from the state and federal level, or lessons learned. What could have been done better in the relationship between the state and the federal government to ease this so that it wasn't quite as bad as it is now? Well, let me start in two different spots. So first, from the supply chain I referenced earlier, the federal government could have been more responsive, could have been quicker about helping us alleviate some supply chain problems. So for example, hours of service for truck drivers. Right. It happened. It could have happened a little sooner. But that's an important, it seems small, but that's important, particularly when you combine it with what the state actions, which was increasing truck weights temporarily right. and local actions of suspending delivery restrictions. But let me make sure I understand you right. The the truck yeah. weights, you know, saying, you know, 80,000 pounds per, you know, for a five axle or something going up to 88,000, that's a state issue. But the federal issues pertain to the the workplace rules that OSHA right. and others would be administering? Right, the hours of service. So they okay. were limited, for example, to 11 hours. And you might recall that was controversial when it was put in place several years ago. But okay. truck drivers were insistent, let us work as much as we want right now and we can move more product. Mm -hmm. And so the federal government ultimately responded, but it was, it was slow. That said, I think then what Mark has alluded to, you saw real um, things that need to be addressed, I think, uh, when you're talking about personal protection equipment and other things that impact manufacturing more on that side. We have more that we needed to work, we need to work on and, and as we plan for the next incident, and I hate to think that there will be, but I think we have to be realistic and think there will be, we'll need more of a uh, coordinated response and a, more, a, a faster response from particularly uh, state and local public health officials right. uh, and municipal officials in the future. And I think those, those are discussions we'll have once we get this uh, behind us as much as we can. Mark, same question to you is what could the federal government and especially the relationship between the state and the federal government, how could that have been better and what lesson can we learn from that? I think the first lesson is be prepared and act quickly. I would agree with Rob that I think the federal government rested for whatever reason, the president on down, uh, whether they ignored it, they didn't want to think it was coming here. But there has been truly a lack of a coordinated effort between the federal government and states. And I think we've had to see state governors step up and try to lead. And it literally, David, has become somewhat of a Hunger Games type battle where states are competing against states and states are competing against the federal government for this product. And you have winners and you have losers. And so clearly we weren't prepared for this, even though we knew that it was coming. We had seen what happened in China, in Europe. We waited far too long, number one. So we, we have to be prepared. We have to act sooner to nip it in the bud. And unfortunately, as Rob said, 
we're probably going to have to deal with this again at some point, whether it's COVID-19, uh, if it comes back, or the next novel virus that comes. And so, again, number one, being prepared. Number two, building our supply chains. But number three, most importantly, there has to be strong coordination between the federal government and the states. We cannot have another situation where it literally is state versus state, city versus city, and in some cases, David, hospital versus hospital that have reached out to us to try to find supply. And it's kind of every man or woman for themselves. And we just can't have that when there's a national emergency. We'll have to leave it there. Mark, Rob, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Please share the podcast, rate the podcast, tweet about the podcast, put a Facebook post out there about the podcast, help us spread the word. This episode is edited and produced by Jen Patya Howell. Ian Enright of Goat Rodeo DC is our audio engineer, and Sophia Yan performed our music. As always, thanks for listening. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.